Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Um, you know, this is a guy in his 20s, you know, far, far from home, speaking a foreign language in a foreign country, um, engaged in an Anglo-Civil War, if you like, and, you know, all the thoughts that must be going through his head. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Todd Braestead, discussing the life of Charles Turner, one soldier, three armies, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author, Todd Braestead. And he'll be telling us about the life of one Charles Turner, one soldier who served in three separate armies. Todd has been a contributor to the Journal of the American Revolution for years, and any time he publishes an article, it's one to take notice of. He gives us, this week, uh, a story of an individual that really has an experience that's pretty unique, and it is how his service will change as the war evolves. Charles Turner is an English name, but this is not necessarily an English person. Um, And his story is pretty unique. Uh, He'll travel all over North America. He'll be under the command of three separate armies. And it just goes to show how in the American Revolution, sometimes the war you sign up for is not the war you get. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Todd Braestead. Todd Braestead, welcome back. Thank you, Brady. Great to be here. Todd, you've been on the show before, but remind us a little bit about your background. Absolutely. Um, I've been involved in primary source uh, loyalist studies for the last 45 years, um, going across the U.S. and Canada and England, uh, primarily concerning the the military loyalists, the regiments, uh, the people, you know, folks are interested in, you know, material culture and battles and whatnot, and those things are great, and I'm certainly interested in those as well. But uh, I really, really enjoy um, delving into the people themselves and, and what they did individually. Todd, what first drew your interest into this topic? Sure. Um, purely by chance. Um, in one of my uh, trips to the William L. Clemens Library at the University of Michigan, I was uh, scoffing up documents as I do each time for whatever future use they might bring. Anything really concerning loyalist military um, individuals, battles, um, intelligence reports, things of that nature. Uh, I don't go into great detail looking at them there. I photograph them and take them home with me and, and at some point, I will transcribe them and, and see what um, use I can make of them uh, at some point. And when I transcribed this over the summer, I found this intelligence report 
of um, a guy named Charles Turner, Continental Army deserter from West Point, who came into the British at Stony Point and divulged all this fantastic information on the fortifications and garrison of West Point. And I said, I gotta, I gotta find out more about this guy since he was a. Uh, it said in the intelligence report that he had been a Brunswick dragoon, you know, from the Northern Army under Burgoyne, the guys who were defeated at Bennington and taken prisoner. Well, this guy was one of them, and apparently he left prison and enlisted in the Continental Army, and then used the opportunity to later desert back to the British. And I said, this is, there's got to be a story here that I'd, I'd like to find out more about. And that's when we, we, we jumped down the rabbit hole at that point. Todd, what do we know about his early life? Uh, not terribly much. I'm, uh, one, I don't speak German. So most of the, the records that, uh, uh, in Germany, I, I just could not find. So that was, that was um, not going to happen, and I wasn't going to lose sleep over that. Uh, what I was um, really most interested in, uh, frankly, was his intelligence report on West Point. Uh, Don Hagis, uh, of course, the editor of Journal of the American Revolution, urged me to find out more about his um, later service with the British, which is what I did have plenty of access to, and I knew I could do justice with. So I, I, I more concentrated on that point. He was uh, born in, in Germany, uh, in Anhalt. I found uh, that out later on. But, um, you know, it was uh, part of the Brunswick Regiment of Dragoons um, that came over to Canada in 1776. So that was about what I knew of him uh, beforehand. Um, I since found out he was five foot three inches tall. Um, and born um, around 1758 from Osterwick, Sachsen-Anhalt. So that's where he was from. Todd, could you detail a bit about his military service? Sure. Um, well, he served with the Brunswick Regiment of Dragoons during the Burgoyne Campaign of 1777, fights at Bennington, gets captured there, uh, gets sent uh, into New England as a prisoner of war, and there enlists in one of the Massachusetts regiments of the Continental Line. It's at a time when the, the, the numbering of the Continental Army, well, the Massachusetts regiment of the Continental Army, is kind of confusing, at least to me, and appears both as the 9th and the 12th regiments um, of the Continental Army. And he uh, gets posted to, with his regiment to West Point, and he's there uh, through 1778, uh, until June of 1779, when he goes out on a patrol uh, with his uh, with some of his men, and during that time, um, he manages to sneak off from them and makes his way uh, a little further uh, to Stony Point, and where he reports um, to the British. And so many of these Brunswick former Brunswick dragoons and other Brunswickers and Germans from the Burgoyne campaign had been making their way into the British lines, the British wanted to do something with them. I mean, they were able-bodied men. They certainly were, were loyal to the cause if they were escaping back to the British. The problem was there were no Brunswick regiments in New York City for them to field with. And you, the British can't create a new Brunswick regiment. Uh, only the, 
the, the Landgraf of Brunswick can do that. So what they did was they formed these men into a provincial unit. British commander-in-chief can form loyalist units at whim. He has that authority. He had that authority, and that's what he did. He could pay them as cavalry. He could uniform them from provincial stores, and they could serve as a loyalist unit, even though they were, they were all uh, Germans. And that's what they did. They put them under a Hanoverian officer, um, this guy Friedrich Diedemar, uh, who was actually a Hanoverian, but a captain in the British 60th Regiment of Foot, ironically the Royal American Regiment. So it gets confusing. That's why you have the article as a scorecard. Um, but they put them into this troop and made them hussars, rather unique, very light cavalry. And there was no cavalry appointments for Loyalist troops. They had to buy everything. Demar bought everything for these guys and uniformed them very uniquely, uh, sort of looking like Prussian hussars in black uniforms. They were described uh, as black and as blue, and they, they had different colored jackets, um, caps, these Marlton hussar caps, um, very uh, unique dress. And they would perform um, cavalry duty around New York City uh, for the next few years. And that's what Turner became. He became one of these cavalrymen. How was he utilized by the British? Oh, absolutely. But um, there was nothing else really for them to do. A lot of these guys had been Brunswick Dragoons, so they were used to riding. And you know, they, um, under a Hanoverian officer who spoke German, somebody who spoke their language, the British were always in need of more cavalry. Um, they had sent one of their cavalry regiments home in 1778, so they always needed more cavalry. And this troop of light dragoons uh, would eventually number, not at one time, mind you, but it would eventually number 175 officers and men. Uh, usually with a strength of around 60, 65 at a time. Uh, but they, men would come and go. Um, different detachments would be discharged to go up to Canada or discharged to Hessian units or whatnot. Um, so they, they'd take cuts but recruit more people as they went along. Uh, but they did a, a really um, an effective job supplementing the, the cavalry, uh, which was particularly useful in places like Westchester, north of the British lines, north of New York City, uh, and into New Jersey as well. Todd, could you tell us a little bit about his actions in New Jersey at Hopperstown? Sure. Um, this was during the winter of 1779-1780, which was described um, by many, many people as the, as the most severe winter, the coldest winter in human memory. Uh, it was also at the same time that Sir Henry Clinton, the British commander-in-chief, had taken a great part of the army and sailed south to take Charleston, South Carolina. Now, what made New York City defensible for the British was the fact that it was an island. Manhattan Island, Long Island, Staten Island. Well, that winter, there were no islands anymore. Everything was frozen over. In fact, uh, 2,700 continentals marched across the water uh, the ice to attack Staten Island. Um, the British reprovisioned re Staten Island by sleigh from Manhattan. That's how thick the ice was. So they were worried about Washington coming over and capturing New York City because there was 
no Royal Navy to really help them. Everything was frozen. So what the British did was the old adage, the best defense is a good offense. General Knipphausen, who was the ranking officer left in charge in New York, led a whole series of uh, small attacks on all of Washington's outposts in Westchester and New Jersey. And one of the ones in New Jersey was up at first Paramus Church, and then a month later, uh, about a mile northwest of that, in a place called Hopperstown, named for the Hopper family that uh, was uh, predominant there. And they had about 250 Continentals. The British attack the month previous at Paramus Church was good, but they found that marching that distance really tuckered out the men and didn't succeed in surprising the American garrison. So they decided to add cavalry to the equation, 132 cavalry, and that worked like a charm. These cavalry led the infantry and dashed into town and scattered the, the Continentals there. In the front was Demar with his Black Hussars, and they uh, shut up the um, commanding officer of the Continental Detachment in one of the Hopper houses, and the British couldn't force their way in, so eventually they set fire to it, and the Americans inside realized that, okay, we're, we're, the game is up. And the commanding officer opened the door, and one of uh, Turner's um, troopers, one of, the, one of his compatriots, uh, shot the officer with his pistol, uh, not realizing he was surrendering. Um, the, the rest of the house surrendered uh, quickly after that. But um, it was one of the actions where we know, you know exactly what, the, what these guys were doing. Uh, two of the hussars were wounded. No evidence that Turner was. Um, no evidence that you know he was specifically there, but his unit was, so most likely he was. And it's one of the uh, very interesting um, ways that cavalry could succeed um, by covering ground so quickly in, in an engagement like that, just, just how the British wanted to employ them. What ultimately happens to Turner? Well, he continued uh, at New York City uh, only for a few more weeks. Uh, the, the battle in Hopperstown was April 16, 1780. And just a month later, General von Riedesel, the senior Brunswick officer, had been, um, had been exchanged uh, from the Convention Army. And he gathered up all the Brunswickers at New York City, and they set sail, um, set them up off to Quebec, because the, the Brunswick Regiment of Dragoons was actually sort of recreated uh, up in Canada and had four, at least four troops of dragoons up there. So Turner rejoined his regiment up there uh, with um, the other hussars who had been Brunswickers and helped reconstitute his Brunswick Dragoon Regiment. Uh, and so from that point in 1780 through July of 1783, he served with them. In July of 83, he was discharged from the army. Um, he was no longer a dragoon, and since he was no longer a dragoon, I no longer had any uh, record of him. So he disappears into the annals of history at that point, at least as far as I can say. 
Todd, you've looked at thousands of primary sources. Uh, how common is a story like this? That's a great question. Um, every story, I'll, I'll preface it by saying, every story is unique, but there are many similar stories. We just don't know them all. Um, these intelligence reports of escaped deserters or escaped prisoners, things like that, uh, people coming in from the countryside with all these tales to tell. You know, we, we, we don't find that many diaries or journals and whatnot, but these sort of things really fill the gap. And some of them are just fascinating, and they just scream out at you. Um, they're, they are the voices of these people um, that otherwise we would never know of. And it, it's, I consider myself fortunate to, to, to really find something like this. Um, you know, it, it's certainly not the only um, really cool document. We, historians, uh, I think, have, have two classes of documents, uh, really cool and, and, and junk. Um, I, I, there may be a gray middle ground, but that's about it. Uh, so this really cool document and um, just tells us so so many really neat things um, about West Point, about this person's private experiences. Um, you know, this is a guy in his 20s, you know, far, far from home, um, speaking a foreign language in a foreign country, um, engaged in an Anglo-Civil War, if you like. And, you know, all the thoughts that must be going through his head, um, you know, who knows what family he left behind in Germany, um, you know, he'll ever see them again. And, you know, those thoughts can't be just unique to him. They had to have been going through, you know, so many other people back then, so many of his compatriots in one way or another, from one side to the next. Because um, some things, you know, perhaps are universal. And, you know, it's, it's just a, a, a neat story. And when I saw it, I'm like, yeah, I, I, this, is, this is something that should be shared. Todd Braisted, thanks again as always. Uh, it's my pleasure, Brady. Thank you so very much for having me once again. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>